We're starting this episode with a very warm thank you to Raiffeisen Nachhaltigkeitsinitiative, Raiffeisen Sustainability Initiative, for supporting the making of this episode. You can find a link to their website where you can read more about their work with sustainable development in the show notes. Your support means a lot to us. Thank you. I'm Marlene Lett. And I'm Evelina Lundqvist. You're listening to Love Zero Waste. Today we're talking about how to turn cities or regions zero waste. Guests are Andrew Marr of Metro Vancouver and Joao Bernardo Casali of Ionica. I think this topic is super important because more and more people are living in cities. In cities, we have the diversity and mass meeting point for businesses, for investment, for infrastructure. It's it's like the hub of the future. So if we could turn a city zero waste, I think we could have a massive impact on more spaces. I totally agree with you. I've been looking forward to the making of this episode (laughs) for a really long (laughs) time now, because this is systems change, large scale systems change. I mean, cities are comprised by all of us living in them, but at the same time, cities are the aggregated kind of result of all of our behavior. And if we can change that, Mm. that means a lot. Should we try to define a zero-way city? or region before we get started with interviews? It would be good, I think. Looking at it from a process perspective, uh, the processes of making a zero-waste city or region is participatory. In every single corner of the process, it will be participatory with any community that's involved or any stakeholders. But looking at it from the waste or the resource management perspective, what is a zero-waste city or region for you, Evelina? I think... It's a place that is struggling with overconsumption of its citizens. And it's a place also which has to take a turn away from landfills and incineration. Yeah, like the last resort options that are in many regions or cities, they are out of question. We haven't been able to find a strict definition of a zero-waste city or region because the zero-waste journey probably looks quite different from place to place. But moving away from incineration and landfills does play a very central role. In today's episode, we're learning more about exactly how different this journey can be. In Vancouver, Canada, we're getting a better picture of the types of challenges that generally pop up along the way. And in Noronha, Brazil, we're looking closer at a bold quest, I would almost say, which panned out really, really well. Andrew Marr is the director of Solid Waste Planning of Metro Vancouver, co-chair of the Plastics Advisory Panel in Canada, and lecturer in Waste Reduction and Recycling Technology at the BC Institute of Technology. Andrew works for Metro Vancouver's Solid Waste Services Department, addressing waste reduction and recycling, water conservation, liquid waste and environmental management. Our first question to Andrew was, what role zero waste plays in the transformation towards a circular economy? The concept of the circular economy, as you know, is is fairly complex. It's much more than simply more recycling. But the idea of zero waste is something that people are 
seemingly more uh, easily able to wrap their minds around. They understand the concept of waste. They understand uh, the idea of getting to zero waste much more easily than they can understand something like the circular economy, which it involves much more than simply eliminating waste. It involves a whole change in the way in which we provide products and services and uh, in the way that we, we make use of materials during their lifetime. So you feel that the concept of zero waste is easier to understand than the circular economy? Yes, but it's a, a bit of a double-edged sword. You know, when we talk about the challenges uh, that people don't usually understand, because people think they understand zero waste, they naturally gravitate towards recycling. And in in my opinion, there's, there's just too much reliance on recycling. People instinctively think that, for example, circular economy simply means recycling on steroids or just more and better recycling. And it's much more than that, as you know. It's you know using materials for their highest value for as long as possible and uh, pursuing business models where you provide us an ongoing service as opposed to selling a product which you then you know wash your hands of. Working towards a zero-waste city or region, do you see other challenges that people aren't aware of? I would say that one of the biggest challenges we have here is helping people to understand that the, if you know the expression, low-hanging fruit uh, has already been picked. What we've already done to achieve uh, waste diversion has been the easiest things. In the Metro Vancouver region, we currently divert 64% of all the waste that we produce, which is a pretty um, decent achievement. It's it's as good as, as pretty much any place in North America. However, in, in getting to 64% waste diversion, um, we've done the easiest things already. Every increment that we achieve from here on is going to be harder. It's going to be less convenient and it's going to be more expensive than the, the things we've done in the past. Interesting. So what's what's the difference? I mean, the low-hanging fruits, I understand, but how do you even start with the other, the more far-reaching fruits? Well, much of the, there are other things we can do, obviously, but much of it stems from the p- potential for new regulations, uh, new legislation from senior governments in particular, but it re- that requires the um, the appetite and the, the political will for senior governments to sort of step up and, and bring in uh, new laws, new regulations that don't exist right now, things that are quite more far-reaching than things we've seen in the past. What are the simple things then? As if you're reaching for kind of policy now, what were the things that you were doing before that? Um, I would say the simplest things that we've done in the past have been the the very basic extended producer responsibility programs, the ones that some people would call traditional EPR, where uh, the manufacturers and brand owners of products have been made legally and financially responsible for managing their products after they become waste. But that, the managing of that product traditionally has always been done in, in the form of taking back the product and either disposing of it or recycling it and that works for certain things but there are there's there are many other products for which that model of taking it back and then recycling it just doesn't work can you give an example of that what would that be 
one of the things that I do here is I'm a, a co-chair along with uh, uh, Maya Vodanovich, uh, the mayor of Lachine, Quebec, um, a plastics advisory panel. And that plastics advisory panel is made up of local governments from across Canada. And so we, we looked at, in particular, certain plastic wastes, and we, we prioritize them by saying, what are the plastic wastes currently out there that either cause a particular problem environmentally because of the way they're being littered or disposed, and what are the ones that also create problems for municipalities, the municipal operations, things like littering and uh, abandoned waste, or illegal dumping, or sewage treatment, um, things that might not be normally thought of. And so some of the, the priority plastics that we identified would require legislation in the form of, we think, EPR, but not in the traditional way. So if you look at something like cigarette butts or cigarette filters, depending where, where you are in the world, um, cigarette butts, as, as you may know, are uh, a plastic item. Many people think that they're cotton or, some, or cellulose or some sort of biodegradable fiber and they're not they're they're actually mostly made out of cellulose acetate so actually a form of plastic and you're probably also aware that cigarette butts are the single most littered item in the world there are over five trillion cigarette butts littered every year the majority of these you know if you've ever been on a beach cleanup then you you'll know that cigarette butts are also the most prevalent item in terms of numbers uh, that you find on beaches anywhere in the world. And so obviously a lot of these are ending up in the ocean. Now, a traditional EPR program, if you tried to bring one in for cigarette butts, simply wouldn't work. Since they're so commonly littered, uh, they're not something that you're likely to be able to have a take-back program for for recycling. So that's one where the kind of legislation that we suggest for cigarette butts, uh, you know, our first choice would be um, legislation that eliminates uh, the ability of cigarette manufacturers from using that material as a, as a fil filter. What's the region of Vancouver's most pressing challenges, in your opinion, and how would you solve it? I, I wish I could say I had magic solutions for everything. Um, we don't. One of the challenges we have is the fact that we don't have a, uh, a moat around, <laughs> around the region. And so waste will tend to go wherever it's cheapest and, and that there, there are no laws that prevent waste from being uh, taken out of the region. Um, and so options for diverting waste have to be able to compete economically against the cost of disposal. Another challenge I would say is around organics. Despite the fact that we've managed to make great progress in, in diverting organics and composting, it's still the single largest material in our waste stream that's going, going to disposal. And part of it is the struggle to keep the cost of centralized composting competitive, especially as our region grows and as organics processing facilities are in close proximity to to residents and businesses. Uh, the, the challenge of odor control, just like it is everywhere, is quite a, a big challenge for us. Do you see any other solutions to this, or are there still challenges that need solutions? I think the, the biggest thing that we've been trying to do is we've been looking at um, You know, if I take 
odor control as an example. We've been looking at ways in which we could bring in standard requirements and best practices for organics processing facilities that would minimize odor, but we're trying our best to ensure that it'll affect all of the operators equally. Um, and so, again, with that level playing field concept, that's the, the, the single most important thing to, to make sure that these sorts of things work. Hi there, I'm Evelina. If you are a regular listener to Love's Zero Waste, we need your support to create more episodes with even richer content. Check out our offer on Patreon or through PayPal. Consider making a one-time or even a monthly donation. You can find the links to Patreon and PayPal in the show notes. A special thank you to Raiffeisen Nachhaltigkeitsinitiative, Raiffeisen Sustainability Initiative, for supporting the making of this episode. Thank you so much. It means a lot to us. Back to the show. Our next guest is Joao Bernardo Casali, Chief Regeneration Officer, Impact Entrepreneur, Corporate Activist, Systems Thinking Consultant for Businesses and Public Policy, and co-founder of the B Corp Ionica. Mahalin, the titles. Yeah, wow. It's I love amazing it. and impressive. Uh -huh. wow. Chief Regeneration Officer. It's like he should be in every single episode that we're making. This is the future. Yeah. yeah, he is the future. It's awesome. We have a lot of <laughs> guests working towards the future, but this one is something special. Mm -hmm. Okay, so during the last few years, Joao and his team have been working on several projects related to quitting single-use plastics. The project that we're diving into today is Noronha Plastic Free. Yes, people, we're going yet again to a beautiful island in this episode. This time we'll be talking about Noronha, the first Brazilian territory to ban all single-use plastic products, and that all at once. Here is Joao. It's a very beautiful island. It's like a paradise. It's an island with about 6,000 residents that receives about 100,000 tourists every year. And it's very iconic for tourism in Brazil. The project, it's, uh, like I said, a public policy. So it, it turns out that Noronha is the first territory to ban all disposable plastics, the most common ones, glasses, straw, and catering, and plates, and bags, and everything uh, simultaneously. So it's, a, it's very challenging. And there was a, a public policy decree banning that use in, in 2018, in the end of the year, in, in December. And the legislation became effective in April of 2019. And we've been working in this period, helping the local municipality first to design the law and then to do the strategic planning to reinforce and guarantee that the civil society will follow the law. How, how was that ban received by the society? It was really well received, basically because it's an island and, and there is uh, this big culture of fishing and protecting the ocean. So 
the residents are very connected to that. There's a, a beautiful places to to go for swimming and and diving. So this was a good thing. When we we went there for the first time, we did this participatory design in January of last year, and we did that including not just the local government, but representations of civil society. So we built together with them. We facilitated the, the process of, of designing all of those education and, and communication actions. We plan about 30 different actions about awareness and environmental education and we we proposed that to the local government and and they approved some of that and we decided to go fundraising in the private market to get in the money to implement everything that we designed the the action plan and we got it we got it with the Heineken group Brazil i was really proud that we got that very innovative fundraising, blended finance, because usually the companies are very interested in communication, publishing, and, and a lot of them still doing greenwashing. But the, the agreement with Heineken was pretty much to fundraise the public policy without any trade of selling beers of anything like that, any marketing association with the project. It was just the money to fund everything that we planned. Where did the initiative come from, from the beginning? Was it a civil society initiative or where did it come from, the, the municipality? The first spark came from the municipality, the local mayor, the administrator and, and his team. They got really engaged about doing environmental actions in the island. In Brazil, it's a bit different because you have state, municipalities and everything, and especially in the island of Noronha, that is a state district, so it's very different from, from everything, but they still have four years of, of mandate. So when they, they started, they thought, well, I think we should do something about plastic, right? We are in this island, plastic is becoming very important as an environmental uh, conservation subject. And they started with that idea. But then me and a company that is partner uh, with us that did the whole communication part of the project were invited to go there and, and help and see what we could do for it. So that's how it started. From the participatory processes that you were facilitating, what in those processes did you see were like key or essential uh, for the project to progress? Every facilitation process, in my point of view, has their own immersion uh, creativeness, right? And in Noronha, we were really amazed by the fact that everyone wanted the same thing. It was a, a shared purpose. You know, we want to ban plastic because we are in this isolated island in the middle of the ocean. We think this is a, it's a good thing for our culture, for our community and, and for our way of living. So we didn't have a lot of people, you know, criticizing or 
obviously there's always some political uh, you know point of views because they all they have a history right we're outsiders they've been there for a while the island has a history they have obviously some conflicts in the past but when turns to be the discussion about plastic everyone was at the same page so this was a great thing a great alley for the process what what did you find in this project that make you successful um that could be a value for sharing every territory has your own needs and their own culture especially when you're working with environment it's uh, there's no rule right there's no defined rule and i think all the consultants and leaders that go for a process like that need to understand that every plan is going to have changes because it's impossible to predict everything so it's a dance and you need to be very fluid on that but in the sense of the difficulties that we had i can say that the the political conflict about the territory i you know mentioned but use it as a positive thing can sometimes be really hard because there are some people politically they are trying to to make themselves you know notice in different ways because they're always thinking about elections and that sort of thing but i think the biggest challenge for us was to make something really new in our country in an island that is visited from uh, a lot of celebrities and and famous people so it's uh, everyone is looking at what's going on and the whole stakeholder process was very challenging because we had in one side the government in on the other side we had a big company a multinational corporation and then we had the civil society and we as a impact business small playing in the midfield of everything so we were pretty much the facilitators of different stakeholders that wanted different things with different needs and we needed to be good for everyone so it's a lot of conversations it's a lot of community development there's a lot of open listening to everyone to make uh, sure that everyone is engaged in the process it's a complex process and it's long it doesn't change you know night today you need to go to to do some public talkings in different places in churches that usually are not really engaged to the environmental protection you need to go to schools public schools you need to go to bars to restaurants to hotels and and just different sectors and different perspectives of what's going on so that's very challenging very challenging i was thinking about the single use plastic item ban how much of the plastic situation on the island could you control through that maybe there are currents from the mainland carrying plastic onto the beaches for example was that still a problem or could you curb that as well somehow most of the people that arrived in the island come from airplane right there are some boats 
but there are no touristic boats coming to the island. It's very far. There are some fishing, uh, but people that live in the island, and there are some dive trips, but also people that live in the island. So it was just one way, and that was good for us. That was a positive thing. So we knew that the airport was like the hot spot. You know, if you if you control the airport, you're pretty much gonna have uh, a lot of chances to make it successful. So what we did was first we did a partnership with the airline companies in the in the flight on audio describing the project in all flights that go to the island. Imagine that people were there. You know, you are in Recife, which is the capital of the state of Pernambuco or Natal, because you, you can fly to Noronha just from those two places. And then you get into the flight, and you're there, it's just one hour. And then in this period, you're going to have five minutes of a, a beautiful audio telling you what, what's, what's happening. So you have the chance to give and to engage someone in like this special world of an island that don't use disposable plastic. So that's the pretty much the first contact that the person has it. And then they landed and we put it a lot of uh, communication signs, you know, good static design to say, oh, Noronha doesn't use plastic, it's forbidden, sort of strong image and sentence like that. You enter in a different world. And then in Noronha, we built an engagement center. It's in the middle of the island with a lot of different activities, plastic-free, disposable exposition, telling a whole journey about how bad plastic can be when you use it badly, because let's just point it out that plastic is not the villain, but we are talking here about disposable plastic, right? So there's this journey, and then there's a video, and then you have workshops almost every day in this engagement center. So we pretty much built a new sightseeing, a new place to encounter others and to promote activities. The feeling of being Noronha is pretty much everywhere, all the stores and, and everywhere, that uh, plastic, disposal plastic was not a good thing. Heineken was the company that sponsored the work. How did you get them on board? What was the kind of the pain point for them? Why did they want to participate in this? Uh, you never know for sure. <laughs> but no, I'm just joking. Heineken is being a great partner to us. And it was a great match. Perfect for the occasion. Five years ago, that would be impossible to have, in my opinion, a big company financing a public policy project like that, at least in Brazil. We all know that the the transitions being accelerated and the narratives, they're becoming more and more, uh, you know, creative. So Heineken Group Brazil has a sustainability department, as most of the big companies. And I guess we had the luck as well when we... We did the presentation, we built the narrative, we put the, the, the communication actions in there. We had the luck 
when we presented to Heineken to have both of the inter-entrepreneurs leaders, one from sustainability department and the other one from the government relations department, engaged and aware and willing to do a good thing, to build a, a different project, to actually to be genuine about it. I guess sometimes it's just a match. It happens and, and it happened to us as well. Obviously, the final decision, it's not essentially from the sustainability department. In a big company, you need to go to the board of the decision, you know, CEO. But they thought it was a good idea to start to, to do a big thing like that. I mean, we cannot be naive. And we know that Heineken or other companies use that kind of project to make accountable for zero waste loss. In, depending on the country. Also, it's a great in terms of, you know, investment for the shareholders when you have ESG uh, investment nowadays. So, I mean, it happens too. But what I can really point it out about this is that was genuine, was, you know, honesty the whole time. Oh, this is all super interesting. I'm thinking something that we haven't really discussed in this episode, which provides another perspective on creating zero-waste cities and regions, is to put pressure on companies to change their business models and the products that they put on the market. And Marlin, I know that you have some thoughts on this and also on regions in an even wider sense. Another aspect that I think is super important, talking about cities and turning regions zero waste, is the waste management analysis. And when cities are turning zero waste, they are trying to get rid of whatever there is that cannot be recycled, composted, refilled or reused. And the corporations need to be included in this process as well, because mainly, what, and of course, that would be the easiest thing to go for their community uh, get rid of anything that we cannot handle in the system from a community perspective. But then the corporations could still continue with the business as usual in other locations that haven't applied the zero waste processes yet. So it would be very, very important to include those corporations in the beginning. And what about your take on regions? So if a whole region puts pressure on a corporation, stuff might happen. But also... If a whole region puts pressure on another region and yet another region to turn fully zero waste, we're talking about large-scale system change and the corporations have no other option than to follow. Yeah, I like that thinking. But the, And I think especially the example from Noronha also says how incredibly complex this issue is because in that case they can kind of control the influx of plastics uh, to the island mm. but in a country that is not an island I mean you have plastics coming in from all directions all the time so it's possible but it's also incredibly complex and it takes cooperation the public-private partnerships are key to making this happen. We need the collaboration between civil society, between um, the public sector and the private sector. That's the only way this is going to happen. 
Mm, and then I'm also thinking about the regions can be smart together. Like if you're a region in the center, uh, being surrounded by other regions that yet have any uh, steps towards uh, zero waste, then you might ask them to push it all together for you to not be in the middle and needing to take care of all the streams of any kind of product or package that you cannot handle in your system. The island is like the ultimate place to try to make this change fast and also very efficient. But then what can you learn from that, putting yourself in a perspective, being in a region that is surrounded by other regions? Mm-hmm. How do you do it in Austria? If you would turn Austria around, make it fully zero waste. Oh, wow. Can I do that? Um, <laughs> what would I do? I would definitely ban single-use plastic items. I think that's that's my first thought. That's where everybody goes. But it's also what you see all the time. Um, mm. What else would I do? I would put a lot of effort into expanding reuse systems, having a reuse quota as a law. Um, I would... Um, hmm... <laughs> You're putting me in. Who would you work with? <laughs> I would work with. Who would be your I ally? Would make, I would make a public-private partnership. Ha! Huh? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's good. Kaboom. That's good. So, if you feel that the zero waste cities and regions are your thing, we've prepped the show notes. We talk about these show notes all the time, but they are amazing with links where you can read more about famous zero waste cities and region initiatives in Japan, Italy, Slovenia, the Philippines, Indonesia, and more. And now, dear listeners, to this episode's call to action. Yeah, so we have one call to action to start with. We highly recommend you to check out the Zero Waste Master Plan, a guide to building just and resilient zero waste cities by Gaia US and Canada. Check out this publication. You have a lot of good information in it. It's very concrete. They have case studies. They have the different obstacles that you will face in the transition and how you can get around them or solve them. Just check it out. I think it will be very inspirational and highly relevant to cities and regions. Yes. But one thing that I think we have to talk about more, Evelina, but maybe not this time, is whatever there is that's left when you have been transitioning towards a zero waste region or city. Most probably there will be some waste left, something that we cannot recycle, can't refill, cannot reuse, cannot compost. Um, what do we do with that? That's a tough question. Yeah, and definitely something that we have to learn more about. It's super interesting, the residuals. Yeah. And we have one more call to action. Yes, and that is a bit of self-promotion over here. So listen to our Zero Waste Trends in Europe podcast episode. If you haven't done that already, it was like two episodes-ish ago. Um, listen especially to the interview with Jean-Marc Simon, who is talking about reuse and the trends around reuse, because reuse is one of the key ways on the path towards a zero waste future in cities and regions. 
we'd love to get your feedback on the show. Did you learn something new? What topics do you want us to tackle in the future? Let us know. And make sure to subscribe to Love Zero Waste in the app where you're listening. Never miss an episode. Love Zero Waste is a collaboration between Circulus and The Good Tribe. We're always open to new ideas and collaborations. Visit us on thegoodtribe.com and Circulus Office or Love Zero Waste on Instagram and Facebook and spread the love using hashtag Love Zero Waste. Our jingle is done by Michelle Stankelman of Merlin Sound. I'm Evelina Lundqvist. And I'm Arlene Lett. You've listened to Love Zero Waste.